0: Well, what a passage we have ahead of us this weekend! You know, this is the point where any speaker typically you you work to see how you can come up with an interesting uh, or funny intro to get the attention of those that are going to be listening to you, and hope we get you interested enough to listen for the next forty minutes or so. But there's no, there's so much in this passage today that I want us to get that I've come up with what I believe to be the most appropriate introduction I could possibly come up with. You ready? Turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. Take the outline out of your celebration folder, okay? Here we go. We're going to jump right in. How many of you read this passage, you knew this was the next one, and you read it this week ahead of time? All four of you. Well, those of you who did read this know that we are in for an interesting uh, study this morning, some interesting things in this passage. We're going to start out looking at verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3. The first thing that Peter wants us to recognize in this passage is that we are to be people who bless believers, that we are called to bless believers. Believers. As we follow Christ's example, the title of this message is called to Christ's example. We are called first to bless believers. Let's start reading in verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good, and he must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We are called to bless believers. And in this passage, every member of Christ's body is called to this task. In the past few weeks, We've looked at passages that give special words of guidance and teaching and encouragement to various groups of Christians within the churches of Asia Minor. But now Peter speaks to all those who have given their lives fully to Christ and have trusted in His sacrifice for their sins. The issue addressed here is how to relate to each other as we live out our lives together as Christians. So this is one that if you call yourself a follower of Christ... This applies to you. First, I believe that in this passage, Peter is calling us to be and not do. To be, not do. It's an inner transformation. Our walk with Christ is not something we can just keep. We try to do good things and we try to get, you know, six of these and two of these. And if we come up with the right combination of good things that we do, then we're a follower of Christ. What Peter challenges us to is that we are to be. It is to be something transforming us internally. And the first thing that he calls us to is to be harmonious. Now, that doesn't mean to sing well with the person next to you. He calls us to be harmonious, having a common mindset, not necessarily the same tastes or gifts or habits. If you've been around long enough, you know that in any given church, we don't all have the same tastes and the same gifts and the same habits. What we are to have is the same thoughts and assessments of the essentials in life, like God and Jesus and salvation and virtue. We are to be harmonious, we're to be focused on the same important things. Second, Peter says that we're to be sympathetic. Feeling what others feel so that we can respond with sensitivity to their need. I believe that when we have true sympathy coming out of us, we generally do not say, I know how you feel. Because we know how another feels, we also know how unhelpful it is to hear someone say, I know how you feel. You see, we don't need people to say they know how we feel. We need them to be sympathetic. True sympathy is fairly quiet. It is time intensive and it is presence intensive. It's a way of being. It's about what comes out of us and ministers into another's life, not just words. Then Peter says that we're to be brotherly. Don't view each other as strangers, Peter says, or as mere acquaintances or even as distant relatives. View each other as close family. Now, in reality, family can have some pretty serious squabbles, can it? And they can exchange some very harsh words. But only in the rarest of occasions does the family break up over their disagreements. You know, the old joke goes that you can choose your friends, but you're stuck with your family. That's how we are to be with each other. We're to be brotherly and view them as family. Next, Peter says that we're to be kind-hearted. Now, this is not a word describing conduct. This is definitely a B word and not a do-word. It's not describing conduct. It, it's talking about our insides, literally your innards and your belly. The literal translation of the Greek here means to feel generous in your belly. Now, for those of us guys who are getting into midlife, we are more generous than we were in the past. It's exactly the opposite of hypocrisy that acts tender but feels malice. You see the difference? That, that our, our kind-heartedness is, is pouring out from within us. It's not just made up because it's something we think we need to do. Then he says we're to be humble in spirit, not just acting the role of a servant, but that inside, with auth- authenticity, we have a lowly spirit. That we are people who feel that we're dependent upon God for life itself. And we feel utterly fragile and vulnerable in ourselves. We're to be able to see ourselves as sinful and unworthy apart from the free grace of God. That grace that makes us stand in wonder that we are loved. And so we can humbly love others. If it pours out from within us because of a growing relationship with Christ and we are truly humble, we will not be pushy and self-assertive, but we'll care for others from this inner transformation. And so actions flow out of inner transformation. First there's the be, and then there is do. It flows out of inner, inner transformation. We are to bless others, even those, Peter says, who do evil against us and who insult us. Now, if we did a survey to see how many of us, that's our first reaction, when we are done wrong, it would probably be a very low percentage. What Peter's saying is that you are called to be different. We are called to be something better. We are called to be transformed internally so that what comes out of us is not evil for evil or insult for insult. He says that as we do this, we need to live in the reality and the receiving of the blessing that God gives us. We need to live in the reality of our inheritance, He calls us to. It is graciously given. It is not an earned thing. It's an inheritance that we are given by a loving Heavenly Father. These actions are ones that can flow out only from the inside. Verse 10-12 through is a quote from Psalm 34. Peter chooses a passage that David wrote when he was hiding in exile from Saul. Now if you remember, Saul was David's friend and his mentor and his king. But Saul was trying to kill David. I'd say they had quite the family squabble going on. And yet David... Pins these words of trust in God. His desire to look at this in the right context. Without internal transformation in our lives, we, like David, cannot pull off this sort of blessing to those who are in the body with us. Because in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, it is just too hard to do, isn't it? It's just too hard. And yet... God promises us that we can be transformed and we can bless our brothers. So, how are you doing at blessing your fellow believers? How are you doing at blessing your fellow believers today? Second, we are called to bring hope to seekers. We're called to bring hope to seekers. We see this in verse 13 through 17 of this chapter. Let's read that together. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We're called to bring hope to seekers and we can do so in the midst of persecution. It says that we are always to be ready. Always be ready. Peter's telling us that each of us need to have a personal readiness to bear witness to those that we meet from day to day. We just need to be ready. It says, don't fear what men fear don't fear what men fear in the beatitudes jesus said in matthew 5 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake don't fear persecution don't fear what men fear you see you pay homage to what you fear what we fear is in first place in our life it is it becomes the priority for us our fears stand first in line before anything else in our life We're essentially paying homage to it. We're we're setting it apart as important and as priority. So cowering in fear before men is the opposite of bowing in reverence before God. Don't be afraid of the sorts of things that men threaten you with, Peter says. Instead, hallow and set apart Christ in your hearts. Give Him the first place not fear. Peter is commanding us to do what we need to do to have our hearts brimming with hope and not fear. We're not to fear what an unbeliever would fear. What would that be? Well, the threats of men. They fear others. They fear what might happen from others. If this person makes this decision or if if the congress does this or if this leader says this, that's going to impact me and it brings fear upon me. That's what men fear. Unbelievers fear what men might do to them rather than what God Himself might do to them. Not only are we not to fear what men fear, we are to set apart or hallow or reference or sanctify Christ as Lord. This is what we do in order to not have fear in our heart of what men can do to us. To reverence or to set apart Christ in our hearts. And in this way... We'll always re- be ready to make a case for our hope. You see, if it's Christ who has first place, if it's Christ who is reverenced, who is set apart first in our heart, rather than fear, then we have hope that we'll be able to share with others. It means to honor Him alone. To set apart Christ means to honor Him alone. He is to be regarded as the holiest being in the universe in a category by Himself. He is to be given the highest place, the greatest value. He is to be seen as the most supreme treasure. He is to be given the greatest admiration. He is to be our most cherished prize. The one we esteem and honor and love the most out of all the persons and all the things in the world. And that honoring has to come out of an internal, internal conviction. How do we develop that? How do we develop an internal conviction that Christ is first in our life? That fear will not stand in the way and be hallowed above Him? We see a little bit of the answer in a passage in Luke 21 where in the last week of His life, Jesus was warning his disciples that unbelievers would persecute them. Look at what he says to them. In the midst of this discussion about persecution, he says this in verse 14 of Luke 21. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself, for I will give you words and wisdom. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourself. I'll give you words and I'll give you wisdom. So, how do we get ready and stay ready to make a case for our hope? Well, don't worry about it beforehand. Place Christ first. Worry about hallowing Christ, setting him apart in our life. There's an interesting thing that happens in the translation in 1 Peter 3 in the NIV. Now, some after the first celebration came up and said, Well, I don't have the NIV, and it's right. It's just a period, everybody. That's all we're going to talk about is a period versus a comma, okay? In verse 15, there's a period in the NIV, which most of us have, after the phrase, but in your heart set apart, Christ is Lord. You see it? But the original text would indicate that this phrase more accurately leads into the next phrase, which says, always be prepared. So if we change the period to a comma, we get kind of a different feel. What Peter is really saying here is this, set apart, Jesus Christ is Lord, prepared to give an answer. Peter is telling us that when Jesus Christ is truly Lord, when he is set apart as first place in our life, then we're prepared to give an answer. When our internal being is being changed by this relationship with Christ, we are prepared to give an answer. It's all about building a relationship that is vibrant and that is growing so that hope pours naturally out of us. A spilling over of the eternal conviction that we do have the answer. It's not as much about knowing the nuances of hundreds of Scripture verses as much as it is about setting Christ apart in our heart. About allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. It's less about knowing every little nuance of theology than it is reverencing Christ, hallowing Him, setting Him apart. And as we do, we're told to fear God, not man. Not only are we not to fear what men fear, we are not to fear men themselves. In Isaiah chapter 8, This Old Testament passage gives us insight here. God gives Isaiah a warning about how he should feel about his unbelieving countrymen and about God. And he says this. Isaiah 8 starting in verse 12. Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord God Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And He will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, He will be a trap and a snare. The way to reverence and set Christ apart as holy is to fear Him instead of fearing what men fear and dread. Instead of fearing men themselves. But does God really mean here that we're to be gripped by the emotion of fear when God is our Lord? I don't think that's what he means at all. If you look at the end of verse 14, we see this promise that for those who fear him, God will be what? A sanctuary. God will be a sanctuary for those who fear him. A place where you can feel safe and secure and peaceful. It seems to be paradoxical, doesn't it? If God is our dread and our fear, He will be our refuge and our sanctuary? Well, we can't read these words to mean to be constantly gripped by the emotion of fear, but this, rather, always regard the displeasure of God as more fearful than the displeasure of men. We need to get to the place where we are people who believe that the prospect of offending God is to be much more dread, a much more dreadful thing to us than the prospect of being persecuted by men. That we care far more about God's opinion than we care about man's opinion. That we first follow Christ and not men. Where God is in first place and not the fear of men where we realize that the thing that we do not want to do is go against our God. Then Peter says that we're to have this answer ready for everyone who asks. I believe this simply means that the hope in us must be obvious. It doesn't say everyone who we accost on the street. It doesn't say, even say everyone we go door to door to. It says, everyone who asks, meaning the, the closest people in our life need to be asking us, what in the world is going on? Even in the midst of the hardest times of your life, you seem to be hopeful. You, see, you seem to not get upset by this. You see, the fact that anyone would ask indicates that they must see in us that we have this kind of hope, that we won't be able to keep it from showing, nor would we want it to not show Everyone who asks. And when they ask, it says we are to give an answer. You know, I think it's kind of clear the reason many of us are not more free and natural in testifying to our neighbors and our friends and our family about the reality of the hope that we have in Christ. I think it's this we don't feel very hopeful. We don't feel very hopeful. But this passage challenges us that our hope is found in Christ, not in circumstances. It is found in our trust of Him, rather than what is happening to us. It is about being, not doing. Peter's challenging us to be fearless, not fearful, when it comes to giving an answer. We cannot have fear and obey this verse, can we? But why does... Peter challenges, why does God want us to be fearless? Because I believe those around you need you to be fearless. Because fearlessness shows that our hope is unshakable. Fearlessness is a clear testimony that our hope is real. Our fearlessness honors Christ as both the basis and the goal of our hope. Not fearful, but fearless. We're to give an answer of what? Our hope in God. Our hope in God. As we've seen, there must be a deep internal hope developing in us as we honor God alone as holy. And I think there are four things we can do if we want this to be true in our life. First, I think we need to settle the questions of our own heart. We need to come to the place where we settle the questions of our own heart. And I believe that comes when we encounter God. When we encounter God. And I don't mean sit in a church service and hear about God. I don't mean, well, we're just going to hope it happens. I don't mean learning a bunch of stuff about God. I mean encountering God. Without an encounter with Jesus without a deep internal belief in God's character, all the meditating, all the knowledge that we gain will not build a deep and abiding hope in us. It is not about knowing stuff. It is about knowing Christ. We need to settle the questions in our own heart. We also need to believe God's promises. Our hearts have to be full of the promises of God. And there must be more than mental assent to the truth. There must be the truth we know and the truth we live. Later in 1 Peter, we see these statements. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Do we believe the promises of God? If we believe God's promises, if we encounter God, then there will be built within us a hope in God. Next, I believe we have to go to the Word of God to build hope. If you are not having a daily time where you allow the word of God to speak into your life, then your hope is going to wane and fear will be set in. Honestly, if you come to me and say, wow, I just, there's all this stuff happening in my life and I don't, I don't know what's going to, I don't know what's going to happen and I'm fearful and I'm struggling. The first question I will ask is, are you spending daily time with God, allowing his word to give you hope? Because apart from it, Fear will set in. It just will. Go to the Word because you're desperately needy and your own hope wanes. The fight of faith is waged on our knees with the Word of God and prayer. Not our own work. So in addition to the Word of God, we need to meet Jesus in prayer. If you're not daily taking your cares to Christ, if you're not casting all your anxiety on Jesus then your hope will not be the thing that rises to the surface when someone asks for a reason. If you have no hope, then you'll have no reason. Christianity does not call us first to work for God, but to hope in God's work for us. So how are you doing at building within you a hope? That you can share with seekers today? How are you doing at blessing believers? How are you doing at building within you a hope that you can share with seekers? We are called to both those things. And third, we are called to triumph through tragedy. We're called to triumph through tragedy. Let's read verses 18 through 22. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. First, we see Christ's triumph over our sin. His triumph over our sin. Verse 18 begins with the word, for. So these next verses are an explanation of why Peter has said what he has in the previous verses. We're called to give hope even in suffering, because that is the example that Jesus gave to follow in His suffering. Now, there are many puzzling things in the verses ahead. Verses 19 through the first part of verse 21, in my opinion, form a kind of parenthetical statement. In my Bible, I've actually written the parentheses so that I don't get confused. I have an open parentheses, this is English class, before verse 19, and a close parenthesis in verse 21 after the word God. Now we're going to get to this. And here's why I think this parenthetical, this is just my theory. I think Peter had ADD. And, and so as he was writing along, he, he, he gets to this, this section. He goes, uh, he was. Put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Oh, the spirit. Let's talk about the spirit. And then he talks about, well, he, okay, he went into prison in the days of Noah. Oh, and there was an ark in the days of Noah. He kind of goes off and we talk about that for a little bit. And then he picks it up. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're going to get to that parenthesis, But first, let's make sure that we get the main point. Peter's intention here is to help us arm ourselves with the faith to suffer for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. He wants us to be armed and prepared. He does this by helping us recall the sacrifice and the ultimate victory of Christ. So what's he tell us about this? Well, first, Christ suffered and died. Christ suffered and died. And because He did, we will suffer. You see, the mindset of Christianity is this. Our Lord suffered. And we will follow him in suffering. Jesus says to us, I bear the cross. You will bear the cross. Remember, Peter has told us previously that we are aliens and exiles here on earth, and that it is neither surprising nor abnormal when cultural powers revile Christians. Are you surprised? Are you still shocked? when you hear on the news or you read in the paper that something or someone is putting Christians down. is saying that what we believe is silly, is not true. Are, Are you still surprised by this? You see, we don't feel that normally until maybe recently, especially in the U.S., But it's normal in most places around the globe to suffer for being a Christian, to be reviled, to suffer far more than some article in the paper, to suffer physical persecution and even death for being a Christian. To be safe and respected is the exception, not the rule in our world. And so this passage, we have to kind of look further out to a greater world view to understand what Peter is telling us. Christ suffered, so we will suffer. He tells us that Christ did it once for all. And this is a very important theological statement. That Christ died once for all. Christ's death was final and all sufficient to accomplish forgiveness of all who believe on Him. The debt of our sin is paid in full. And as Jesus spoke from the cross, it. It. I think we're okay. It is finished. It is finished. There is no further sacrifice needed. None. The sacrifice of Christ, when he died, filled the need. And it is finished. It is once for all. Peter tells us that He, Christ, the Righteous One, died for each of us, the unrighteous. Christ's death was substitutionary. He took my place. He took your place. He took on Himself the wrath and the penalty that I deserved and He bore it for me. His death was one of an innocent it was for our sins, not his own. Christ's death was a substitutionary atonement for us. Called for by God, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter tells us that the reason for all this was to bring us to God. This is ultimately the whole point of our life. It's all about God and his glory. The point of Christ's sacrifice on the cross was to bring us to God and bring God glory. We just get in on the salvation part of it. Because in saving us, God is glorified. So now we see Christ triumph over our sin. Now we're going to take just a few minutes and we're going to dive into this parenthetical section. These next three verses are some of the most discussed, most debated, most controversial within Christendom, which is probably why Pastor Steve assigned them to me. It just seems to happen. Jay and Bill get marriage. I get these three verses. But we're not going to avoid them. them. Let's take a few minutes and see if we can completely numb our brains. Okay, you ready? It begins as Peter says this. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive in the spirit. Okay, easy enough. Though Christ's earthly body was killed and laid in a grave, his spirit soared triumphantly in freedom, thus giving us spiritual life. Okay, got that. Easy, right? But, A.D.D. Peter decides to comment on the Spirit. Look at verse 19 and 20. Through whom, the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Huh? Well, first he told us that Christ's triumph was over sin. Now I believe... Peter is going to take his little parentheses here and remind us that Christ's triumph was over the enemy. He triumphed over the enemy. And it says here that he went. That there was his journey. There was some journey that went on. Well, where did Jesus go? What is this talking about? He went and preached. Well, there are several popular interpretations here, and here's where I land. If you don't agree with this, we'll argue after, Okay? While his body was in the tomb, after his crucifixion and death, Jesus' spirit descended to the underworld, to paradise, as he referred to it on the cross. You see, remember on the cross he told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Not, well, three days from now, I'm going to raise from the dead, you know. No, today you will be with me in paradise. And paradise is kind of a, Without getting too complicated here, kind of a division of hell. That's where Jesus went, in my opinion. What well, says he went and he preached? It says he preached to the spirits in prison. Well, who are these? Who is he preaching to? Well, I believe that these spirits in prison were demons or evil spirits who had disobeyed God during the days of Noah. See where it says who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. These are demons who had been consigned to punishment in Tartarus, or hell, because of their actions. These are demons who had overstepped the bounds established for them by God. And we discover this in Genesis 6. We discover what they've done. Now this all gets very complicated. But suffice it to say that most biblical scholars believe that these demons were ones who had taken on human form, had cohabitated with women, and produced a demon hybrid race. Heady stuff, huh? Science fiction? No. Apart from a very interesting study here, and apart from, you know, I know many after the first celebration ask if we were going to have t-shirts in the bookstore about the demon hybrid race. But no, sorry about that. You know, apart from, this is all, it's, it's very interesting. What I think is the most interesting thing that we can actually apply is that we see how evil the planet had become by the time God destroyed it with the flood, don't we? that if these demons had disobeyed God's orders to not do this, had taken on human form and had children with women on earth, what a mess. What a mess of evil. What an attempt by the enemy to break down God's plan. And so God destroyed the earth with the flood. Well, what was his proclamation? What did Jesus go and preach to these evil spirits? Some of you are still going, a, a, a what? Just, you'll be okay, okay? Somebody told me they were sitting next to somebody in the last celebration and the person looked at him and went, <laughs> Jesus went and preached to these evil spirits. Here's what I believe he preached. I believe he gave a proclamation of victory. Hey, guys. You tried to stop me. You disobeyed me. You tried to pull off something to keep me from going to the cross. To keep my plan for mankind to being carried out. You took your shot, but I win. And in a couple more days, you're going to see exactly the extent to which I win. That's what I believe Jesus went to hell to tell the demons. Now, Peter decides to comment on the ark he mentions. So let's pick it up real quickly in the middle of verse 20. In it, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Now there is much misunderstanding about this passage. We could spend an entire message, if not more, on this one section. But for the sake of time, we're going to try to cut to the chase here. Let me just say entire denominations have been founded on this one passage. But I believe Peter's point is to remind us of this, that Christ's triumph saves and protects us from destruction and from death. Christ's triumph saves and protects us. The ark and baptism here are what are called antitypes or symbols or a copy. This means that these are earthly expressions Of a heavenly reality, analogies of spiritual truth. The ark that we find mentioned in verse 20. Well, what's the symbol here? I believe it's a symbol of the preservation of believers. Because when the flood came, believers in the ark were preserved and remained safe while the earth was immersed in judgment. Noah and his family are a symbol of salvation. Salvation in Christ, which is a, pre- a preservation through judgment. One day we will all be judged. All Christians will be judged. But because we are covered and protected with Christ's righteousness, God will see His righteousness and not our righteousness. In a very real sense, as Christians, we are arced. We are protected from judgment. You see, the water that flooded the earth was the judgment and the ark was the protective covering over a group of eight people who followed God. And when we come to the place in our life where we ask, come to God and repent, He covers us or arcs us and protects us from judgment. It isn't that we don't go through the judgment or never experience the judgment, but the arking of Christ's blood protects us. And then he talks about baptism. Well, what's the symbol here? Could this possibly mean that we have to be baptized to be saved? A belief that is commonly known as baptismal regeneration, that it is the act of water baptism that brings salvation. And without it, true salvation cannot take place. Could it possibly rem- mean that? Well, remember that the word baptism is a transliteration from the word in Greek, baptizo, meaning to immerse, not a translation into a different word. The the translators kind of took the word baptizo and thought, well, let's make it baptism. It would more accurately be translated to immerse. So this can't mean baptism as we know it. Peter, I think, even realizes, I'm writing along in my little parentheses here, and I think I just confused a bunch of people and gave them the impression that water baptism saves. So he adds this phrase, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, it's not about getting wet. It's not about any impact it can have on our body. Think about it. Noah did not experience Christian baptism, but he was immersed in judgment while protected in the ark. Those in the ark did not miss the judgment. They were preserved through it. Just as our believers in Christ. Peter is not talking about an earthly ordinance, but a spiritual reality. He even says it is an appeal to God. The only baptism or immersion that can save us is an immersion into the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit draws us to Jesus and we come to Him, appealing for Him to allow His death and resurrection to cleanse us, and then we repent of our sin and plead for forgiveness, we are placed in the safety of God's salvation ark. And so let's pick up after the parentheses. And this passage concludes in the praise of the One who saves us. Verse 22, Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Christ's triumphant reign over all. It saves and protects us. His triumph saves and protects us. It's a triumph over sin. It's a triumph over the enemy. And it is a triumphant reign over all. Peter says, as you prepare for suffering, remember this, that no harassing, oppressing, deceiving, accusing demon is free to do as he pleases. That all angels, authorities, powers, devils, evil spirits, demons, and Satan himself are subject to Christ. That Jesus reigns at God's right hand and you and I are under Him. You can do nothing without His permission. So stand firm, believers, Peter says, We serve and we follow and we find our hope in our resurrected Savior. We find our hope and we serve and we follow our heavenly King. We find our hope and we serve and we follow the One to whom all will ultimately submit. He is our Savior. He is our King. And He is the One to whom we will submit. Our salvation is secure. And in Philippians 2.10, Paul reminds us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And in in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And because of that victory, we can bless fellow believers. We have within us a hope to share with seekers in our lives. And we can... As Jesus did, triumph through tragedy. So, how are you doing when it comes to living in triumph in the midst of tragedy in your life? How are you doing at building within you a hope that you can share with seekers today? How are you doing blessing your fellow believers today? Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your sacrifice. We thank You for the example of Your suffering. May each of us be people who bless other believers, who encourage our fellow followers of Christ. May we be people who share the hope that is within us with the seekers in our lives. May others come to Christ because of the hope that is within us. And may we be people who triumph through tragedy. Not asking you to keep us from the tragedy, keep us from the hurt, or keep us from the bad things that can happen. But God, help us to triumph through them and glorify you as we do, as we follow your example. May we know what it means to live in the truth of your grace May we know what it means to live in the truth of your freedom. We thank you in Christ's name.